The best way to experience a city is through the eyes of a local. We'll travel to New Orleans and walk along Paris's Rue des Martyrs with the people who know them best. Democratic consultant James Carville says that New Orleans is defined by its culture and way of life, and that distinguishes the city from other places. It's an easily identifiable, recognizable culture. The Rue des Martyrs in Paris has been overlooked in guidebooks because it is too off the beaten path for even a mention. But for New York Times writer Elaine Cholino, the Rue des Martyrs is steeped in so much history. The street on which this, the heading, according to legend, of course, took place was the Rue des Martyrs or the Street of Martyrs. Before Republican consultant Mary Matlin fell in love with her raging Cajun, she enjoyed a love affair with New Orleans. Long before I met one raging Cajun, I love <laughs> New Orleans. We'll cross the political aisle in New Orleans, walk along the only street in Paris, and continue our Fleur de Lis tour in Quebec and Puerto Vallarta, just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. The beheading of St. Denis, now the patron saint of France, was one of many events that occurred on the Rue de Martyr in Paris. According to author and New York Times writer Elaine Cholino, the Rue de Martyr was a cultural enclave where Degas and Renoir painted, Puccini replicated in his La Bohème, and Edith Piaf would sing for a few francs. Yet this charming half-mile-long street that is steeped in history has been overlooked in Paris guidebooks. We will walk along the Rue de Martyr and flip through the pages of Elaine Cholino's new book, The Only Street in Paris, a bit later in the hour. Also coming up on World Footprints Radio Show, we will cross the political aisle and state lines with Republican consultant Mary Madeline to talk about her life in New Orleans and why she and her Democratic consultant husband, James Carville, decided to leave the Washington Beltway for the Big Easy. When you mention the name James Carville, Washington politics almost immediately comes to mind. A key force in the election of Bill Clinton to the presidency in 1992, James Carville is one of America's leading political consultants and on-the-air commentators. This native Louisianan, born in the town named after his paternal grandfather, Carville, is a best-selling author, actor, producer, talk show host, speaker, restaurateur, and commercial spokesman. When he's not doing all of these things, he serves as a political science professor of practice at Tulane University in New Orleans, where he lives with his wife, Mary Madeline, and their two daughters. And by the way, did I mention that he and Mary were co-chairs for the host committee for Super Bowl 47, which returned to New Orleans after an 11-year hiatus. James, welcome to World Footprints. Well, thank you, Ben. Good to be here. Spending some time with you this morning. Indeed, indeed. As one of the leading civic ambassadors for New Orleans, your home since 2008, why is New Orleans such a special place to you? The thing that differentiates New Orleans from every other place in the United States, maybe every other place in the world, is everything is about a way of life. And hmm. if you stop it and you think about it, we don't really live so much as in a city as we live in a culture. And it's a it's a it's a easily identifiable, recognizable culture that that you, you hear the music. Oh, that's New Orleans music. You see the food. Oh, that's New Orleans food. You see a carnival crew. Oh, that's New Orleans. Or you see a, 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 a New Orleans funeral. You immediately know that. You see the wrought iron, the architecture. It all becomes identifiable as a as a larger and a significant, nuanced, deep culture. And so that's the thing that separates New Orleans from every other place. Our way of life is our quality of life. Mm-hmm. You seem to embrace that, that Cajun culture. And, you know, New Orleans is a place that really just grabs you. I can't articulate why. It certainly has grabbed us. But how does that happen to someone like yourself who grew up in the area? Well, there's an expression down here that says it gets all up inside you. You know, New Orleans gets all up inside you. I think after the events of 2005, I came to understand, I'd, I'd participated in this culture, loved this culture, used it, abused it for granted, that it would just always be there, and that I could take it on my own terms when and where I pleased. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me that this entire thing was very fragile, that any 
any culture in itself is always under attack. The continuation of this culture was very much in doubt in late 2005 and well into 2006, even 2007. Over a period of time, it dawned on me that I had a, a obligation to become, if you will, a culture warrior, a culture warrior in terms of, of preserving this, and thought that my family would have a role to play in helping preserve this, and I think that would really sort of drew me to it. When I hear James talk about how the culture of New Orleans was potentially threatened, it makes me realize how devastating Katrina was. We only saw Katrina from the television screens. We did not return to New Orleans until a few years later. I didn't realize the impact in the term that he used, cultural warrior, which is a term I would like to adopt, is very powerful. Indeed it is, and I think it says a lot about what New Orleans really is. As he says, this is a city that is defined by its culture, and you don't really hear people speak passionately about their hometowns in terms of a unique culture, and this could have been lost because those people were dispersed all over the country, places like Houston, Atlanta, but thankfully they came back. Right, and like our friend Kelly Schultz, formerly from the New Orleans Convention and Visitors Bureau, always said New Orleans has a waterproof soul. And to think that water nearly wiped that city out, but it has come back, it's even better. We've witnessed that ourselves. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Now, a lot of cities are in our national consciousness because of crime, poverty, and a host of ills. New Orleans does have its share of problems and challenges, but it also has such a reservoir of goodwill that I think you've spoken to that allows it to overcome some of these things, as evidenced by the 8 million-plus people who come here each and every year. Why do you think that's so? You look at where we are today compared to where we were five years ago. The day before the, the, the events of 2005, we were 809 restaurants. Today, we're probably 1,350 there are more street bands. If the music come out of New Orleans, the people who know this tell me it's at an all-time high in terms of its creativity, its quality. We're a leading city in the United States in terms of brain gain at the kinds of people that are moving in. We're one of the five best places in the country to start a business, which has traditionally never been the, the, the case. There's been a recognition that our entire culture is you know, has to be protected and not only protected, but it has to be advanced. And you, you keep hearing that. You can't go anywhere where somebody's not wearing a fur to lee or has something in a front yard or a car. Level of civic pride here is at an all time high. We're becoming the maybe number one destination in the country for big sporting events and cultural events. So mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of things that, there, there are a lot of things that give me, you know, great optimism about life here. Well, we know you're a big sports fan, and you and Mary were co-chairs of the Super Bowl host committee for Super Bowl 47, and certainly, by all accounts, New Orleans did a fantastic job. And what was that like, just to have that spotlight back on New Orleans again? It, it, was, really, it, it was really a special thing, and, and I thought it was kind of appropriate that Baltimore and San Francisco, both cities are a little bit like New Orleans, and that they have their own culture and their own way of doing things. And... and you know, New Orleans doesn't want to be Dallas, and Baltimore doesn't want to be Washington, and San Francisco doesn't want to be L.A. We're quite content with who we are, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I thought it was kind of appropriate, kind of appropriate things. It turned out to be a, a, a really good game. It was a great weekend. And, you know, we got many other things that we're going to be working on. Our big focus is going to be on the 2018 is going to be the tricentenary, the 300th anniversary of the city of New Orleans, and hopefully we'll get another Super Bowl back. I think the NFL is very favorably disposed to us, but there's a lot of competition, so you, you, we're going to have to work real hard to try to get that back. Mm-hmm. For the sake of full disclosure, Ian and I have adopted New Orleans as our home away from home. We, we love the city. We travel there uh, every year for French Quarter Festival. And we are actually working to bring a group of new travelers to New Orleans this this fall. And so when I, I talk to people who live in New Orleans, I, I like to get a sense of, you know, where the locals go, what the locals like to do. And so as a local, 
what is some of your favorite places to to dine and to get entertainment? What New Orleans has more than any other city in terms of the music. There are more street bands now than they've ever been before. Quint Davis told me who who runs the Jazz Fest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just unbelievable. I think it's really good that we bought you know real jazz back to to, to Bourbon Street. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know one of the, my favorite questions. This is a question that amuses every New Orleanian. And sometimes people say. You know, I'm, I'm coming to New Orleans. I, I don't want to go to French Quarter. I want to go where the locals go. Mm-hmm. My answer is, well, this is one local that goes to the French Quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and I see a lot of my friends there, but I, I don't, I, yeah, I, yeah, right. The locals don't go unless they're going to Gallatoire so much, at, you know, the one through 500 block of Bourbon Street. But there are, there are a lot of really cool places in the French Quarter. But I would suggest people do it is like research some of the dive bars in New Orleans. We don't like anything new here. So if there's not a a bar with a you know a dog with three legs sleeping in the corner, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? In a in a, in a in a dirty bathroom, we're not too interested in it. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of those all around town. Right. And you know to get a car or a taxi or something and go on a dive bar, you know, in a dive bar call. The other thing is, is a new streetcar line, mm-hmm. the Canal Street line. Mm-hmm. You can take it out all the way to City Park and go to uh, there's a morning call, which I think is the best coffee and beignets by far in the city. They have a great place out there at City Park now. Another thing I'd highly recommend is take that Canal Street line, get off at like I think like the 3700s block and walk, but I'd say toward the lake. And there's two great local restaurants, a couple of three blocks off of it. Uh, one is Katie's. That's one of my favorites. Another one called Liuza's. And if you're really industrious, you can go and walk up the Justin Davis Parkway, probably be a seven, eight block walk to Parkway uh, Bakery, which is the pro boy shop that President Obama went to. And you can do that all off the Canal Street line. I, I, th- I think that whole Canal Street mid-city area is is underappreciated sometimes. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are exploring life in New Orleans with Democratic consultant James Carville. We will be crossing the political aisle a bit later to talk with his wife and Republican consultant, Mary Madeline. You can find links to more information about this political power couple on our website at worldfootprints.com. One of the things I wanted to ask is that even though you're no longer inside of the D.C. Beltway, you're still pretty connected to the political scene here. We see you on cable quite a bit. How different is Washington for you now that you're no longer here? I guess one of the things that when you're in Washington, you, you hear that uh, Washington is disconnected, and when you're there, you think, oh, there's just a lot of whining out there. And then when you get, actually, you get out in the rest of the country, and to some extent, Washington is a little bit disconnected. We tend to talk of Washington, we tend to talk about things that we are interested in, and sometimes not so much things that are really affecting people's daily lives. I think this lack of income growth we have in this country is just devastating to people. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of pain out there mm-hmm. that is not, it, it, it's difficult to cover and sort of difficult to acknowledge. And, and, and I guess that's, what's, that, that's my kind of view from here. It's a little bit like a carnival parade where all the people in the parade are having a, a great time, but a lot of the people that are watching the parade you know, his lives are not as good as the people in the parade. You know, it's some metaphor like that. Of course, Cornwall is different because everybody has a good time. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I have come, if you ask me, what since I've moved back and I lived here and then came back, what is the thing that I've really come to appreciate? And the answer is Mardi Gras. Mm. Mardi Gras is so much cooler than you think. And it's so... Better, so much better now than it's ever been. Sometimes you, the obvious is there and you don't think about it. And when you participate in Mardi Gras, it, it is a huge family event and it is an enormous local event. It is, it is the favorite event of any New Orleanian is Mardi Gras. The locals are into it. You go and uh, I ride in the, the Mardi Gras Day Parade and they, what really strikes you is the number of families out there the diversity of the crowds, 
And it's not just the size of them. And now the number of crews and how good these crews are and how diverse these crews are and the different ones they have. And I highly recommend Mardi Gras to, to anybody, not the college kid French Quarter version of Mardi Gras, but the, where the real families are out and people are having a good time. Since I've moved back, I've really come to understand its, its special sort of connection to, to people here and what a great local event it is. Dear, I had to laugh when James Carville said Mardi Gras is a family activity because I've been to Mardi Gras. <laughs> it is an overload of um, libation and, you know, women throwing their tops up and what have you. I did not realize that there was another activity other than the French Quarter Mardi college theme Mardi Gras that he described. Well, I'm sure you enjoyed the revelry of your Mardi Gras experiences, but again, as someone who's there from New Orleans, it really is much bigger than just a revelry, apparently, which mm. is lost on many people. And, but, you know, and, and he's right, and, and I forgot about the Mardi Gras Indians, the parade, and I would like to actually go back to New Orleans and experience the real Mardi Gras, the daytime Mardi Gras, and get out of the French Quarter and all of the debauchery that goes on in the evening. I mean, it really is an overload of the senses and activities, and, and it's for a youthful person. Hmm. Well, hopefully we can handle that at this point in our lives. <laughs> we'll see. As uh, we wrap up here, I wanted to touch briefly on how you and Mary have really opened your home to kind of help a lot of the nonprofits and a lot of these causes in New Orleans, whether it's one of the organizations like Friends of New Orleans or some of the local colleges and universities such as uh, Dillard and, and even uh, Tulane, you guys really have made New Orleans a big part of who you are and a lot of the things that you're working on as an individual kind of really speak to some of the larger challenges that we as a nation need to tackle. How is, how is this passion of service for you and for Mary being manifested each and every day as uh, you're down there in New Orleans? I think that we subconsciously, and we keep saying, we're going to have a dinner party that doesn't have a purpose. And we keep promising ourselves we're going to do it. We've just never gotten around to get it done yet because most all of the other things do is purpose-driven, and we like that. Don't get me wrong. People here like to to have a good time, I like to, to to have fun while doing good, you know. And uh, we're glad we, you know, we're able to have a house that is conducive to entertainment, entertaining. We bought it with that in mind. It's one of the reasons that that we, we we bought the house we did, and we enjoy having. One day we'll have idea, we'll have ideas village. We'll have a teach for America thing. We'll have a thing for Dillard or, or Cafe Reconcile. Or you, you name it. And uh, we enjoy that, and we had uh, President Clinton over for a fundraiser for Terry McCall. It's always fun to have a ex-president in your house, and the, you know. And Mary's done. The, she, we've had Speaker Boehner in the house. She's done Republican events here too. We do a lot of that, and, and I'm working on a, a new project here that I'm, I'm getting very excited about. It's going to take a little while to bring to fruition, but I think we do. It's going to be a, a big, big uh, boost for our culture. So it's, it's, there's always something going on here. There's always a, you know, an event or something happening. Well, James, we're going to have to bring you back some other time to talk about that new project. And absolutely, it's been and, a we pleasure. Will. and it's going to be you, and you will love this new project. <laughs> I'm just going to keep it under wraps here for, but it's not going to be under wraps for very long. I'm, do we I'm, do we get an exclusive? Uh, I'm some some version of it. I mean, you'll certainly get a lot of interviews. But it'll be something very 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 significant sort of coach the event in our coach. Awesome. Okay, and we'll talk about it. All right, James Carville, we thank you so much for being with us today on World Footprints. Love being on the show. I am here with Luis Villasenor of the Puerto Vallarta Tourism Board. Luis, welcome to World Footprints. In writing the first chapter of our Puerto Vallarta story, what would that be? What would that sound like? Well, when you come to Mexico, you need to experience the food. 
de tequila, de mariachi, and the charro culture. So without question, when you come to Puerto Vallarta, you have the chance to experience all of this because it's the homeland of that. So basically, what it is Puerto Vallarta is a charming Mexican traditional town with uh, facilities of a modern city anywhere in the world with tons of uh, over 25,000 rooms, over 300 different restaurants, and tons of activities. So when people come to our city, they have the chance of an outstanding holiday. So either they come in with the family, uh, with for a bachelor party, or for a honeymoon, a wedding, and uh, just to get away from any of the big cities close to the state, they're just going to spend a nice weekend. Well, Puerto Vallarta has something to offer to all kind of budgets, all kind of expectations. Martyr offers a glimpse into Paris life as it has been for centuries. The quaint half-mile stretch of land is secluded from tourists, yet the myths and legacies of the Rue de Martyrs would beckon any traveler seeking an authentic Parisian experience. Author and former New York Times Paris Bureau Chief Elaine Chalino has called the Rue de Martyrs home for over a decade. In her new book, The Only Street in Paris, she brings to life the history and the daily life of its longtime and colorful residents. It is there that Saint Denis, the patron saint of France, was beheaded, and where Degas and Renoir created. The Rue de Marty is where the Jesuits took their first vows and where longtime residents know your name. Elaine, welcome to World Footprints. Oh, thanks. I've never done your show before, and it's a real pleasure and an honor. Well, we, we love travelers, we love talking to expats, and, and we'll find out a little bit more about your life as an American expat in Paris, but we're quite curious, out of all of the streets in Paris, and there's so many, why did the Rue des Martyrs capture your attention? Because it's magic. One of the people I interviewed said to me, the Rue des Martyrs is the center of the universe. It's a street where anybody can feel comfortable. You know how people go to Paris and they sometimes say, oh, the French, they're so difficult, or people were rude, or they don't smile on the street. Mm-hmm. I was able to make the Rue des Martyrs mine, and I was able, over the time that we've lived on that side of the river, to get to know the people on the street, get to know their, obviously, their their produce, their cheeses, their uh, charcuterie, their clothing in the clothing boutiques, their what we call their métier, their professions, if they're artisans, but also to get to know their lives. And it doesn't happen often in life that you can, in a very compressed community, get to really know people. And, you know, I'm a journalist and curious and can talk to anybody about anything. So I just... Uh, became part of the community in a, in a wonderful way. Now, it, why is the street named as such? Why is it named the Rue des Martyrs or the Street of Martyrs? In the third century, uh, Saint-Denis or Saint-Denis was a preacher. He was preaching the Christian gospel, and he was doing so well that the pagans, the Roman pagans, took him and two of his companions up the Rue des Martyrs and beheaded them. And for those of your listeners who are Catholic, they might remember that Santini became a martyr because he died for the faith. But then he carried his head several miles to the north, and then he, um, as what happen- as always happens with martyrs, he finally died and dropped his head. And that's where they built the big Santini Basilica. But the street on which this the heading according to legend, of course, took place, was the Rue des Martyrs, or the Street of Martyrs. And Saint-Denis is the patron saint of France now. Right, right. Now, I know this street has an amazing heritage from a cultural perspective in in France with names such as Degas, Renoir, Puccini, and a whole host of others. What attracted all of these creative types to this street? The right bank of the of the Seine, you know, the, the France Paris is divided into the left bank and the right bank. The right bank in the 19th century became a sort of headquarters for artists and writers, and so you had people like Degas, artists like Degas and Renoir, painting circus scenes because there was a very famous circus on the Rue des Martyrs. When the Picasso Museum uh, reopened uh, recently. 
among Picasso's memorabilia were, were found little ticket stubs because he had gone to this circus. Toulouse-Lautrec painted there. And you had people like Baudelaire, the poet Baudelaire, who frequented a very famous brasserie, a famous bar, nightclub place. And in our time, if you can believe it, Pharrell Williams and Kanye West <laughs> recorded songs in a state-of-the-art studio that is on the Rue des Martyrs. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to author and New York Times writer Elaine Cholino about her new book, The Only Street in Paris. Life on the Rue de Marquis. Elaine says that the half-mile stretch of this street is magical, and walking along the Rue de Marquis is always a joyous experience. Now, in researching the history of Rue de Martyr, was there one historical story that, that stood out that had some special appeal for you? I'm glad you asked that question, Ian. Yes. In 1534, on the Feast of the Assumption, August 15th, 1534, Ignatius Loyola and six of his companions went to the site of where Saint-Denis was beheaded and took their first vows before they created the Jesuit order. And for me, that was very important because I went to a Jesuit college as an undergraduate. I went to Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. My father had gone there. I was married by a Jesuit priest and a rabbi. And I covered the Vatican and traveled with the Pope. You know, I was very close to the Jesuits. And there's a crypt there that's this very small, unknown crypt. There's no, you know, Saint Denis gift shop across the street or Saint Ignatius Loyola tapas bar. Uh, but I took it upon myself to write to Pope Francis and ask him to come to the Rue des Martyrs. And I told him I had covered the Vatican. Years ago, I told him that I'm in the volunteer association of the crypt. I told him my middle name is Francis. And I said, look, someday you have to come to France because France is the eldest daughter of the church because of its history with the Catholic Church. And when you come, I want you to come to my street. I'm still waiting for the response. He has not called me back. So if your <laughs> listeners have any in with Pope Francis, please ask Pope Francis to pick up his phone and call me on my cell phone. I left my cell phone number in the letter. <laughs> well, you should have come to D.C. and uh, or New York when he was here recently and caught up I, with him there. You know, the book was like two days away from being published because I was poised to get that book with somebody, one of my colleagues who's on the plane today, covers the Vatican today, to take it back to Rome. So we're going to have to, I think we might have to have a little bit of divine intervention, Tanya, now. <laughs> we we can work on that. We'll, we'll work yeah, on that thank with you. you. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes. Now, you know, Ian and I are former travel agency owners. We're obviously travel journalists, and uh-huh. we've traveled the world. We've used numerous resources, and I'm shocked. We're both shocked that the Rue des Martyrs is not mentioned in any guidebooks. And it seems to us, certainly our listening audience, you know, these are people, these are travelers who seek authentic experiences. And it seems that the street would offer a traveler the most authentic Parisian experience. Why do you think the Rue des Martyrs has been overlooked? It's not in guidebooks for for a number of reasons. I mean, for you know, fifty years ago, there were more prostitutes than than children on the Rue des Martyrs. Mm. You know, it was a very rough neighborhood. In the nineteenth century, when it was first developed, it was developed when Paris was expanding rapidly after industrialization, and the and the buildings there are not grand buildings that you might see in some of the other neighborhoods. They're simpler. They're not very architecturally interesting. There are no museums on the Rue des Martyrs. It's sort of, if you go straight up the Rue des Martyrs to the end and you keep walking north, you'll hit Montmartre, so you'll hit Sacré-Cœur. But it has not been on the radar screen of tourists. And that made it even more wonderful for me because there were no Americans on the street. You, you don't. None of my neighbors speak English, and this was one reason why I felt so delighted to be made to feel at home. Now, this may all change with your radio program because if you make me famous, then everybody's <laughs> going to come to the Rue des Martyrs. So, in a few years, there might be a Saint Ignatius tapas bar or um, gift shop. <laughs> <laughs>
You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We've heard from Democratic consultant James Carville about what life is like in New Orleans. But just ahead, we will cross the political aisle and speak to his Republican wife, Mary Madeline, about the decision to leave politics and the Washington Beltway for New Orleans. But in a moment, we will continue our conversation with author Elaine Shalino about her new book, The Only Street in Paris, Life on the Rue des Martyrs. Life is easy along the Rue de Martyr in Paris. It is a street where everyone knows your name and your business. It's also a street that is steeped in history, yet it remains off the radar for most tourists. For author Elaine Cholino, walking 10 feet along the Rue de Martyr could take a half hour as merchants and residents stop you for a gossip. Elaine, give us a sense of what's happening on the street today. We're here in Washington, D.C., and we hear a lot about gentrification, and we're seeing neighborhoods that were off the radar screen completely become the focus for a lot of development. What's taking place there today on the street? Well, the street is one of a number of streets in Paris that has a certain section that is protected under French law. It's an artisan-based part of the street, so that if a food shop goes out, it has to be replaced by another food shop or another quote-unquote artisanal street, so that, for example, a fish store went out, and this was a crisis in the neighborhood because the, the, the fish, there had always been a fish store at this place, and the local mayor, you know, every arrondissement or neighborhood has its own local mayor, and the local mayor went on a campaign, he launched a campaign to find another fish store to keep uh, the flavor, the food flavor of that part of the street. Under law, artisan shops can only be replaced by artisan shops, and that has kept part of this neighborhood this way. You just have a history here. You know, a hardware store has been in this one place since 1865. A butcher has been in its place since 1899. A pharmacy has been there since 1848. So you do have some history and some roots. Now, I won't say all as well, because you have, as you said, Ian, gentrification, all of these new shops coming in that are quite grand and quite expensive. There's There are like mono product shops, single product shops. So you have a shop on the Rue des Martyrs, which is only half a mile long, by the way. It's a very small street. But you have a shop that just sells honey-related products and another shop that just sells jam-related products and another shop that just sells olive oil and another shop that just sells madeleine. So that it's it has become a much tonier, more sophisticated, wealthier neighborhood as Paris has become more gentrified. But what I love about the street is that you still have some artisans and merchants who have a shop and they live upstairs and they're just part of the neighborhood and part of the community. And that's why I wrote this book, because this neighborhood spoke to me. How has life been for you, not only on the Rue de Martyrs, but in Paris as an American expat, because you guys, in your book, you talk about you and your husband settled on three years initially when your job took you to <laughs> Paris, and it seems right. like every year excuses were made to prolong your stay. Well, Paris is like a drug. As you said, Tanya, we, we came for three years, five years max. Then we wanted to get my younger daughter out of high school. My husband, who's a lawyer, was required to pass the French bar. French, in French, he had to take five written and oral exams in French. And once he got past that, he got settled into his job. And so it kind of like just became, well, we've got a niche here. We really like it. We feel like we belong. Our children were enjoying it, and then they went to college in the U.S., and, and so we've, we've stayed. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're exploring life along the Rue de Martyr with author Elaine Cholino. Elaine, Paris is one of my favorite cities, and I, I spent a lot of time there back in the 90s for college. What have you loved most about living in Paris? That's a really interesting question, and I have to say and this, is, this may sound really corny, is that I finally found as if I discovered home. You know, when I lived on the other side of the river, in a very fancy neighborhood off the Rue du Bac near the Bon Marché uh, 
department store, I was always looked at as, you know, a person of standing, worked for the New York Times, married to a lawyer, but I always felt like an outsider. Somehow something clicked when I was able to have a conversation with just about anybody about anything. It's like I crossed over a barrier and could feel as if I wasn't afraid of anything anymore. Does that make sense? And I think that can happen to you in any city that, you know, once you give something of yourself and you decide to create a community, then you're giving, but you're also getting something back. And Mm -hmm. I, I write in this book, you know, I never feel sad on the Rue des Martyrs. And it's, and it really is true. There's kind of like a spirit of belonging. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I can't walk out on the street without having a personal conversation with someone. I completely understand what you're saying. Having lived abroad myself, I lived in in England and for a little while, even in Russia, there's just something about the opportunity for self-discovery when you're you're traveling or, or living abroad. That's incredibly transformative. And speaking of which, I would like to know what has been the most transformative experience you have had while living in in Paris. I can tell you an interesting experience I had living in Paris that was like a wake-up call, which is when I went in to interview President Jacques Chirac early in my time in Paris. I just arrived as bureau chief for the New York Times, and I went in for an interview with then foreign editor Roger Cohen. It was a very, very tense time. It was the run-up to the, the war in Iraq. You know, I had been the diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times. I had covered terrorism. And we go in to interview the president of France on a Sunday morning, and he greets me with a big smack on my hand. You know, I got a best man, a kiss on the hand. And I was totally stunned. I thought, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening. And that was a wake-up call that you are different because you are a woman. And uh, mm. and that I that was the lead of my last book called Last Seduction, <laughs> How the French Play the Game of Life. <laughs> I saw that title. I look forward to reading that one, too. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it, it is different. <laughs> it is different here, you know. Mm-hmm. You're not in Kansas any, anymore. But, you know, you mentioned something about the sort of feeling of changing yourself or belonging when you're in a different culture. I mean, I don't feel French. I feel very American. I still speak with an American accent. I can never pretend to be French. You know, I probably walk like an American, and I I still dress in some ways like an American. But I discovered something on this street that's very personal that I haven't really talked about very much, but I discovered the good father, and I write about it in this book, that you know, I had a very in many ways, difficult father, but he was the owner of a little Italian food store in Niagara Falls, New York, and he was at home in his shop, and his customers loved him, and he loved them, and it was that bonding that he had with the other that gave him joy, and I discovered that kind of bonding on this little street, and, you know, I'm not intimate with my neighbors, but I do know a lot of their personal stories now, but there's just a sort of what we call a partage, a sharing that is really quite special. And I and I honestly think that just about anybody who comes onto the street is going to find a little bit of that sunshine. Mm. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And we are both very intrigued about the Rudy Martyrs and hope to visit your street on our next visit to Paris. Well, thank you, and I'll take you on my secret tour of the Rue des Martyrs if the two of you really do show up. Ooh, we're sold. (laughs) Great. I'm actually quite curious about what the secret tour of the Rue des Martyrs will entail. I know when we were talking to Elaine offline, she mentioned the cabaret, the transvestite cabaret, which has been in operation for over half a century. But I also know in reading her book, she actually took Ariana Huffington to a couple of shopping places where this multi-billionaire woman actually bought a second-hand hat. Uh, as she traveled back from Paris to New York. It seems like this is a street for every taste out there. I guess guess so. You know, there's the cheesemongers, the wine shops. Uh, It would just be nice to meet her neighbors and really get a sense of uh, Paris through their eyes and experiences. I certainly didn't experience this Paris uh, on my trips there. I 
kind of did when I stayed in the uh, in a friend's house in the 16th district on my own. To learn more about life on the Route MRT or and to purchase Elaine Chilino's book, visit her website, elainechilino.com. Chilino is spelled S-C-I-O-L-I-N-O. If I were traveling to Quebec City, what would the first chapter of my story look like? The very first thing you would do, you go, let's say, in a very nice boutique hotel, and you leave the car there for the family you stay because you don't need it, and which is fine, you know, because the city has, has a lot to offer, but it's like an, it doesn't cover a large area. So what we call Old Quebec, it's, it's still in a wild city where you can walk to just about. So what I would do is I would start, take a map, you know, the most important sites, and then take a walking tour all by yourself, or you can have your, use your phone to discover all that there is to be done in, in, in let's say you can walk for three hours. And then discover like adult cafes, maybe a nice interpretation center. Then uh, you're going to meet some nice people who are going to have a French accent, like I do. So because people are very friendly in Quebec City, and and then I would get this European, especially for people from North America, who are not used to that kind of European ambiance. So I would enjoy every minute of that European feeling that there is to the city. So that's what I would be. My first chapter would be taking a great walk. When you think of Republican politics, one of the names that always surfaces is Mary Madeline. Having served under President Ronald Reagan and both Presidents Bush 41 and 43, Mary is one of America's most celebrated and popular political consultants, but she's also a celebrated author, television and radio host, speaker and commentator, mother and wife. She's married to that cute Cajun guy from the other side of the aisle. Politics aside, Mary has left the Beltway and is now leaving a legacy of positive footprints in her new home, New Orleans. She's been named a distinguished lecturer of political science at Loyola University, and Mary is actively involved with a number of charitable organizations, including the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. Mary and James were most recently named 2012 New Orleans of the Year, and this dynamic couple showed bipartisan cooperation at its best when they co-chaired the New Orleans Super Bowl 47. Mary, it's a pleasure to meet you here, and thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Well, thank you, Tanya and Ian. It's uh, my favorite topic, New Orleans. <laughs> favorite topic in the world. Uh, ours, too, oddly enough. First, I want to congratulate you on a wonderful Super Bowl. We are so proud of our adopted home of New Orleans, and even happier that our team, the Baltimore Ravens, won. Were you a Super Bowl fan or, or a football fan before the Super Bowl? Well, when we first moved down, the many miraculous things that happened within a year or so of our being there had nothing to do with us being there, of course, was the Saints winning the Super Bowl, which was as amazing as the Ravens winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, but I, I appreciated that Ravens victory a lot. It was really, they earned it. But we, the Super Bowl in New Orleans, which was our 10th, there's only one other city that's tied for 10th, we want to get another one, and we want to break that tie. But we wanted it to be not just a Super Bowl. We wanted it to be a window on our world, if you will, to show the world, the country and the world, what can happen when people come together with purpose and resolve. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the people call it the comeback. I don't call it comeback. I'm saying push ahead because we're not just rebuilding, recovering. We're way advanced other cities, I would say, and certainly better than we were while maintaining our, our charm and our culture and everything that you, you all love about New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Now, you've made New Orleans your home since 2008, but I, w- I want to go back a little bit and ask how a nice girl from the Midwest, how did you find yourself in the thick of politics in the Beltway, and where did your love of politics come from? Well, backing up, um, I grew up in South Chicago in the steel mills. My mother was a hairdresser. My daddy worked in the steel mills. I'm the oldest and, and ethnic. I'm Croatian and Irish. I was the first granddaughter of the first son. So I was kind of raised not only with that, the Midwestern values, but the immigrant values of 
working hard for what you want. And then my dad didn't make any any gender distinction. Just I could be brave to think I could be anything I wanted to be. So I had a, a certain, what some considered impulsivity at the time, but mm-hmm. I considered it a fearlessness. That when I went away to college, I I've got a three eight or three nine or whatever. But I mean, I like to read and I like to study. But I really like to work. And the, there's a campaigns and elections class, and I it just loved it. I just it was love at first sight. My first job was to be the back end of an elephant in the Lincoln Day Parade, mm-hmm. and I loved that professor. And he subsequently left teaching to work on campaigns. So the, the rest is history. Long before I met one raging Cajun, I loved <laughs> New Orleans, and I loved coming down there when the climate was so different from Chicago. And it just, <laughs> I just, it was so exotic, and it was so, the people were so memorable, and the art, just everything. It's a sensory bombardment, and we got married there. And I said, well, let's get married here. And then we always, you know, we got back every chance we could have. And, of course, we were actively involved in the Katrina, post-Katrina. And it was an act of fearlessness, I have to say, or impulsivity, but I, to move the kids when they were 10 and 12, that was my... I was not fearless about that, but I presumed that they would adjust and love it as, as well as I. And uh, I might have overreached there. That was yeah. both kind of young for them to be moving, but they do love it. So mm-hmm. but it was a bit of an adjustment. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to Republican consultant Mary Madeline about her life in New Orleans as a Washington, D.C. transplant. You've touched on how central New Orleans has been to your personal life, your professional life. And I know it surprised some folks when you and James picked up and left uh, Northern Virginia, D.C., and headed on down to New Orleans, despite some of the challenges in that city. Talk about some of those reasons were and, and how New Orleans just resonated with you that this is the right move to make at this point in our lives. Well, if you're a person of faith, which I am, so nice you just had to open your heart and open your mind and listen to what your heart is telling you. And it just it just felt right. We weren't running away from Washington or running away from politics. We're still involved, deeply involved in national politics. But you know, I just had been there for thirty years and it was Distracting for the kids. One's a liberal, one's a conservative. They're highly opinionated. Gee, I wonder where they got that. And then, they, so that's one, the liberal's always answering for Cheney, and the conservative's always answering for the Clintons. They said, no, this is not what I want my kids to think politics is. So we weren't running away from politics. We still love it, but I wanted a less transactional environment for the girls to grow up in, and a more sensual in the sense of all their senses being cultivated and stimulated by the, you know, it's so beautiful there. The, the smells, the sounds of the church bells, the streetcar clacking, or the, the street music, the architecture is unique in all of the country. The climate is fascinating. I mean, I just love the climate. I love everything about it, and they've, they've really, really flourished there, and all their friends love coming there, so it just, it all, it all worked out. You've really immersed yourself in New Orleans, and I love the, the work that you're doing with the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra. Irvin Mayfield is a friend. He's been on our show before. We, we love him. He's a true jazz artist. Talk a, a little bit about what you're doing with the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra and, and why that selected organization has become a focus of yours. Well, we met Irvin and Ron Markham were one of the first people we met, but before I even knew where it was, when Street I was on, I was tuned in to WWOB. I mean, I just flocked to it. I just found it and haven't changed the dial since the first night I was there. And I love the music. I love the indigenous nature of the music, the originality of the music. And I love Irvin and, and Ronald and the whole gang. But I didn't. I don't really do much except support them and talk about them and try to... I mean, it's Irvin and Ronald are the killer workers. You know, I mean, they get it. They're so both so creative and competent, and inspired and inspiring. And to the extent they are not just 
providing the access to that unique music to listeners from all over the world, they are maintaining the heritage by keeping the old masters together and connecting them with the the young students. And they're, and they're great, wonderful people. I'm, I'm not surprised that he's a, a friend. And they lead, we follow. So they're Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers on this. They're just, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And as is, I'm also doing work with the the Water Institute, which is a new um, repository in Central Clearinghouse for coastal restoration, and the Nature Conservancy, which all fits together. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to preserve not just the heritage, but literally the land. It's a unique state all around, not just New Orleans. So, it's but it takes it takes work. It takes people doing it. What organizations or types of organizations really inspire you to to give? back and, and to offer support. I'm inclined, and this might be my philosophical bent, to entrepreneurship and young people fearlessly staking out. And there's a there's a young man there named Travis Lundin who's she is single handedly making uh silicone south. She's she's making uh code makers and developers and a technical prowess that, that's akin to Silicon Valley is going at L.A. Lab. I mean, I love people like that. He's creative and he's a genius and he and he wants to stay there. So I'm less inclined to the established, not against them, less inclined to the uh, established and more compelled to the newer startups. And mm-hmm. he's a startup of a startup. And I like the, the Water Institute because it's impactful because of its, for the first time, centralizing all the science and plans for coastal restoration. Mm-hmm. And I love music, so I, that's why the Nojo thing is is music and jazz fest and the French Quarter Fest. You know, one of the things that Travis developed or his code makers developed was a, a digital tip jar for street musicians. We have 150 mm-hmm. or so Ooh. or more street musicians, and, you know, people don't carry cash anymore. They just carry cars, particularly young people. So they made this app where... The street musician has a barcode, and you hit their barcode, and the PayPal goes right to tips them, and then that links you to their site and their where their acts are, and it's it's very inexpensive to pull together for the users, but it's 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 won all kinds of awards already. He developed that that and more in a 48-hour hackathon for to develop apps for the Super Bowl. So that's the kind of stuff I love. This is really exciting to me. I think we started, he started rather, nothing good, but four separate companies just from the applications they made at the hackathon. That's an awesome app, and I I know we have so many wonderful street musicians even here in D.C. I mean, I, I could see the the national implication of that or use of, of, of that app, I think that would win an awesome uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody else started that company already, so I'm sure it is sweeping the nation, but you should give him a holler and mm-hmm. visit with him when you're down because it's, there's all kinds of ideas that would uh, be of national application in the Travis world. L.A. Labs, not to be confused with L.A., Mary Madeline, thank you so much for spending time with us today on on World Footprints, and we hope we get a chance to see you on one of our visits down to New Orleans. Well, thank you for loving New Orleans, and just every year, every minute, it gets better and better. So, rock on, live in Naples, on roulette. (laughs) Thanks, Mary. had such a fun-filled show today. It was great to talk to James Carville and Mary Matlin, and it just made me think of some of our special New Orleans memories. And for me, it would have to be Rockin' Doopsie Jr., <laughs> uh, the guy for whom I have a man crush. And I think he is just one of the consummate entertainers anywhere to be found. Pat Sajak loves him, and he's mm-hmm. been on Wheel of Fortune. And he's been on our show, and he was dressed to the nines with his cowboy hat and his uh, snakeskin boots. And uh, <laughs> that he can do splits. And with. yes, he can do splits. <laughs> he and James Brown. I mean, I mean, he just brings forth that for me. So when I think about him, 
uh, that's a positive uh, memory from New Orleans for me. You know, I actually had the same thought, Rock and Dupsie, because he just he's just so lively. He's joyous. He is authentic. He's gracious. And, you know, you don't meet a lot of people like him. However, New Orleans actually does have a, a sea of beautiful, gracious people. And But Rock and Doopsie, man, he's just, he's a character, and he's remained in my memory for a long time. And I think my other memory is that first Mardi Gras, well, the only Mardi Gras I went to, uh, that you'll admit to. <laughs> that I will. Yeah, well, I'll just say I went to that Mardi Gras um, in my youth, and that was an appropriate time. Uh, I don't know if I could do it again, uh, but I'm glad that I had a chance to to experience the nighttime Mardi Gras. I will say that uh, I did not engage in a lot of the activities that uh, you might see along French Quarter. Uh, around you know certainly along uh, along Bourbon Street, which we tend to stay away from when we go to New Orleans for uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but I didn't I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the experience. So you know the the other thing I thought about uh, listening to our show, dear, is Paris. How much Paris has always call, called us. And but for Paris, you and I may not be married uh, because it. Your, it was your trip to Paris and that stamp in your passport that really gave me the uh, inspiration to want to meet you. Yeah, and uh, the thing about that, I was a student at Michigan, and I did not have a passport at the time, and this was 1995. And about 10 days before the trip, I flew out to Chicago uh, on a Southwest flight for the day, grabbed my passport in Chicago, and I was off to uh, Amsterdam and then Paris where I spent two weeks and so that trip to Paris got me that passport that I used twice that same year to go back to London and Paris after that trip. Well and see at the time I was living in England and would travel to France quite frequently either for wine purchases or to visit friends and having lived abroad it was very important to me that I date somebody and you know, subsequently marry somebody who had also tra- traveled abroad and, and shared kind of the same worldview that I did. You know, the other thing that I think came out of today's interviews were the importance of going off the beaten path to experience the local area. We do that every time we travel, whether we take a public uh, bus through Juneau, Alaska, which uh, for me, you know, I'd never been around so many drunken people. Uh, even, you know, say along Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, there were a lot of drunken people in the daytime. But it gave us a flavor of Juneau, Alaska at that time, which is a beautiful city. And, you know, and in other places we, we've traveled, just taking the public transportation, Moscow, there's no better way, really, off, you know, to, than to go off the beaten path and, and see... Uh, and get a feel for uh, for the areas. Yeah, and we've done that on a number of occasions. We did that when we went to Nassau, Bahamas for the day. We hopped That's on a right. bus, and we also did the same. I'm I'm just trying to think. It just kind of slips in my mind. Um, Vancouver. Vancouver. That's right. what I was thinking. During the Olympics, that one evening with our host, we went to a restaurant and we rode the bus, and that bus was filled with a whole bunch of drunken people at night. So what does that say about public transit? Well, I mean, uh, that was during the Olympic Games, to be fair. So <laughs> before we end today, I would like to share an African proverb I came across. To travel is to see. So thank you guys again for sharing another journey with us. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.